church, but let me say to any children who weren't here last week and didn't get your church bear, uh, I have them in my office. And if you will come by at the end of this service and before the next one starts, we'll make sure you get your bear. The word was children. It depends on how you define yourself as a child. Although I will say that uh, I happened to know last Sunday that a teenager, or perhaps two, decided they also needed a bear. That's all right. We got enough. (laughs) Our gospel lesson is from Mark, the first chapter, verses 4 through 11. And this, of course, is Mark's. Uh, remembering of the baptism of Jesus, and that's what today is, uh, the Sunday that remembers the baptism of Jesus. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going down to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. How'd you learn to swim? Your parents maybe took you to the local YMCA where you had swimming lessons. Maybe. Our girls learned to swim by going to the pool at Lees McRae College, and in the summer they taught swimming classes. If you're a little older, maybe a parent taught you to swim, or an older sister or brother, by going down to the local swimming hole. I was never formally taught to swim. For one thing, I grew up out in the country, and I didn't know what a swimming pool was until I was an adult. And besides, my mother was deathly afraid of water. She never learned to swim herself. She always said it went back to when she was a little girl and the great 1916 flood. She would have only been two years old. I don't know how she remembered that, but that's what she said. And so she was terrified of water. So in that sense, she would have made a really good Old Testament mother. Jewish people in antiquity were never a seafaring nation. Water was chaos, or at least water had the potential for chaos. And that's why one of the very early acts of creation, it comes just after the part that we read this morning out of Genesis, is the separating of the waters from the waters and bringing them under control. Water, like the desert, these had a double meaning for ancient Israel. Water and the sea in particular always held the potential for danger. But then conversely, 
It was also a primary means of God's deliverance. Think about the escape from Egypt across the Red Sea. We always compare baptism to the crossing of the Red Sea. That's what Christians have always done. Or think about the Jonah story with Jonah fleeing from God across the sea and all the business about the big fish. And he finally goes back to Nineveh. And not only Jonah, but Nineveh is saved. If you come down into the Gospels, you have Jesus stilling the storm. Control over the chaos of water. Baptism in the New Testament always carries this understanding that water is one of the elements that God can control to save His people. Thus, baptism ties us back to all those rescues that ever came before. So how did I learn to swim? Well, like most country boys, I spent a fair amount of time in the creek behind my house. In places, it was only a few inches deep. But unknown to my mother, there were places it was over my head. But I really learned to swim as a teenager. When a friend and a fellow who was an employer took me to a mountain lake to teach me to ski. Water ski. And you have to learn to swim if you're going to water ski. My mother didn't that either. But that got me thinking about this idea of how we teach people to swim. If water represents chaos in the scriptures, but also salvation, how do we tie those things together? And what got me thinking about it was the following story, and I'm just going to read it to you because that's the simplest way. This fellow writes, our four-year-old, that's a four-year-old, was taking swimming lessons. There's a certain amount of parental consternation. We took him to the local YMCA and enrolled him in the beginner swimming class. I had tried on a couple of occasions to teach him some rudimentary techniques of swimming, but with little success. So we decided to try to get somebody else to teach him to swim. I wondered how much a four-year-old could learn about swimming, but to my surprise, when I enrolled him in the class, his teacher said, wish we'd gotten him a little earlier. It's so much easier to treat younger children how to swim. Younger children? Oh, we'd like to get them before they walk, she said. And my next question is, so just how do you go about teaching babies to swim? And the teacher says, well, we more or less throw them in. And they already know what to do. It helps to get them as young as possible because babies will follow their instincts and behave naturally in water. Don't forget, a baby is in water for nine months before it's born. And babies are very trusting. And they'll allow you to do more with them. The guy goes on and he says, I found that interesting. Babies can be taught to swim because they're more trusting. And so that night I stood by the pool and I watched a skillful swimming teacher do what I had been unable to do. She coaxed our little boy out into the water. She pulled him out till it was over his head. He protested, but she kept tugging. And finally, firmly but gently, she got him to put his face in the water. He was reluctant at first and he came up and he sneezed and he sputtered. But it wasn't long till he had the hang of it, and to his surprise and our delight, he actually could float. I guess that is something good for a parent, isn't it? We watched in amazement, and I said, it just goes to show that sometimes kids trust other people more than they trust their parents. But the teacher corrected me. She said, maybe it just shows 
that parents are the ones who lack the trust. Trust is basic for life. Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist, says that if trust doesn't develop in the first few weeks of life, there will be serious problems on down through a child's developmental years. It usually occurs between the mother and child, although fathers certainly play a role in that. During his or her first weeks of life, a child learns that the world is either trustworthy or it's not trustworthy. The child goes to sleep at night, wakes up in the morning and cries out, is somebody going to come? And so somebody comes. Will they hear my cry? Will they respond to me? And the door opens and mom or dad comes in and there's that special little meeting between a parent and a child. All the cooing and the tickling and the kissing and the caressing and all the stuff we do with a little baby. Erickson says that these are predictable pattern rituals that are crucial for a child's development. They remind the child that somebody does care. Somebody is always available. The world is a place that can be trusted, not feared. On the other hand, Erickson says that a child who fails to experience these rituals, these meetings, these greetings, there's apt to be tragic consequences as that person becomes an adult. You know that's true, don't you? You know from your own experience that's true. But I want to add something to what Erickson had to say. I think we view trust in children as being developed not only by us being there at the right times, but I think we also develop trust by learning when to let go at the right times. Today we celebrate and we remember the baptism of Jesus. And we remember that because it ties us back to our own baptism as well. Baptism of an infant or an adult or a teen has a great deal to do with trust. It's really about trust issues. The loving parent not only knows when to meet and hold, but they also know when to let go and let the child do some things on their own. I'm in a position to see it, and maybe I've even done it, but we've all seen parents who cling to their children a little bit unhealthily, and oftentimes, those children will have some uh, <clears throat> rebellion later on in life if that is done too much. Sometimes we overprotect our children more than we need to. It takes a strong, loving parent to know when to let go, when to let the child do stuff on their own. For Presbyterians, baptism of an infant or baptism of an adult has exactly the same meaning. We bring babies, we bring adults, knowing that none of us, child or adult, knows enough or understands enough to have faith deep enough to qualify us to be baptized. We come because we trust. 
and that is we have faith. Faith and trust always go together. That God is the one who makes us worthy. And only God gives us understanding. Some of you have probably heard me speak and use the name of a person that's significant in my life. His name is Ed Montgomery. Ed was my mentor. He was a head of staff when I was green, just out of seminary, waiting to be ordained, young, prospective minister. And I learned more from Ed than I learned in three years in seminary. He was my friend, and I owe him a huge amount. Ed is now in the church triumphant, unfortunately. Of the many things I learned from Ed, one of them is a prayer that he always used when he baptized a baby. I never found out if he wrote it or if he got it from somebody else, but it impressed me sufficiently that I, when I left there to go to South Florida to serve a church on my own, I asked for him to give me that prayer in writing. And I've used it in the baptism of babies ever since. So if you hear or watch a baptism that I perform, the closing prayer will contain that prayer I got from Ed. And there's a couple of lines in it that are significant to me, and I always stop and swallow really hard. Because it goes like this. Someday, when maturity blesses, teach these parents how to take this young hand from their own and place it into your hand, O oh God, for then she is yours alone to guide and to lead and to sustain. How hard that is for parents to do. When we bring our children to the waters of the baptismal font, they are present in the right place at the right time. Here in the church at the beginning, we are acknowledging that this child is a child of God. They stand before the door of the community which has been opened by the Master and says, whoever receives me as a little child. The church is a family which is commanded to continue Christ's care of the little ones. But you've got to understand the definition of what little ones means. Little ones in Jesus' speech means the poor, the helpless, the oppressed, the young, the old, the outcasts. Those are the little ones, Jesus says, who will inhabit his kingdom. Nobody comes to the baptismal font because they're worthy. All come because of God's grace. Baptism of a child is a time for embracing new life. Baptism is also a time when the parents begin that process of letting go. Parental love and mothers and fathers or in Holy Mother Church is a love that can let go and should. Whenever the love of parents becomes possessive or grasping or tight-fisted, it is perverted. 
Yeah, sure, a parent must bring up the child in the way into which they should go. But in the end, it is inevitable that we must also turn them loose. As a parent, we must never forget all our attempts to bring that child and nurture that child, but that does not relieve us of the responsibility when it's time to turn loose a little bit. It's easier to let a child go if you know you've done your very best to bring them up. But the truth is, there comes the day, and it's not a day, it's a hundred days, it's a thousand days, when we turn loose just a little bit. You take her to the first day of school and she says, Thanks, Daddy, I'd rather do it myself. Or you take her off to college and she says, I don't think I want to stay. And you say, you got to stay and try. Or she comes and she says, you know, I'm not interested in being a doctor. And you let it go. Or he comes home and he brings a girl that you didn't choose and says, this is going to be my spouse. In a thousand ways, we learn to turn them loose. If you're wise, you let them go because ultimately, in the end, there are things they have to do on their own by themselves. We would shield them if we could. We would shield them from the blows of life. We would like to keep them from the heartache of growing up, but you can't. They only learn by making the journey themselves. There are no shortcuts. And so baptism says, in faith, we can give you a few rules. We can tell you how it felt when we first came to faith. But the truth is, we're going to turn you over to God, and you're going to sink or you're going to swim. You can't answer for them. The old phrase, God has no grandchildren. Every generation comes afresh to God. And life, we know, is not always walking by those still waters. Wish it were. It's also the swirling, churning cataract where deep calls to deep, and we know what chaos looks like. Maybe get knocked down by the wave. We're overwhelmed. The early Israelites knew this, as did the early Christians. That's why they understood that water was both chaos and rescue. We love our kids no matter how old they are, no matter how old we get to be. We would love to make life easier. But the truth is, we come to the font, we pledge them to God, we rear them as best we can, and we trust that God will have to do the rest because we can. Sometimes we let them go into the arms of somebody else who can teach them a little better, like a swim coach or perhaps their youth leader or maybe even to a friend. And we do it because we do it because we love them enough to know we must. 
when we baptize a child or an adult, they stand here before the gathered congregation and an elder always stands there too. And that elder is there to remind all of us that guiding and nurturing this newly baptized person is not just their responsibility, it's the responsibility of the whole community. We baptize as a community in the name of Christ. I've never had a less than joyful baptism. Everybody loves baptisms, especially the little ones. They're always so much fun. But we always must be reminded that as we gather before the font, we need this grace we're being given. We can't make it. That is to say, we cannot connect to God on our own. We need God's grace in every way, and this is one of the most profound ways we receive that grace. Parents stand there before God and the church and they say to their child, if we could, we would do your dying. But we can't. We would protect you from all those pangs we know you're going to endure. But we can't. We would take you through the calm waters if we could. But we can't even do that. What we can do is put you into the hands of a loving God who will lead and sustain throughout whatever the waters of life bring. You see, baptism is God's act. We just join in. Whether we're a little tiny baby or a full-grown adult or somebody somewhere in between, This is the profound act where water representing all of God's saving action comes and bestows grace upon us again. And so we enter into the waters again, young or old, perhaps with a splutter or maybe a sneeze, and our head gets wet, and the Holy Spirit comes, and for the thousandth time, one of God's children ventures forth into the deep. But they are sustained on the everlasting hearts. And that is a promise worth claiming. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.